From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. And those people who are involved, they know who they are. They should be very scared right now. Welcome to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where our experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Despite the suicide of Palm Beach billionaire pedophile Jeffrey Epstein, victims are still seeking justice and ripples continue to nip at the heels of those who enabled him. Today on our show, we dive into the Epstein case, Beyond the Grave Edition, with Craig Chochino, director of Miami Law's Innocence Clinic. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Craig. Thanks for being here. Good morning. It's my pleasure. Well, first, let's talk about where the criminal case is headed. With Epstein hoist on his own petard, that part of the case is, not to put too fine a point on it, dead. What about any of the enablers or co-conspirators? Well, I... I think that those who were involved with him, and I'm sure they know who they are, uh, should probably not rest very easily over the next several months. The indictment that came out of New York uh, against Epstein specifically mentioned uh, some of his associates and employees that were involved as co-conspirators. They don't, I don't believe the indictment names them in particular, but they have at least uh, identified other people who are helping him doing it. This is a broad scheme of trafficking in underage women here, um, it, there's a lot of moving parts to a multi-state, almost international endeavor like this. There's got to be a long list of people who knew what was happening and either facilitated it or turned their back on it and, and pretended not to notice. Uh, and those people who are involved, they know who they are. They should be very scared right now. And the appetite is very definitely there to pursue. Of course. I, I mean, he he did what he did, took the easy way out, to, uh, to so to speak. Um, and left all these other people holding the bag for him. Typically in a case like this where you have a big fish like Epstein, um, who is you know, well-documented of doing this stuff over, over a long period of time, the government will go after the low-level associates and participants to give them a plea deal in exchange for their testimony against Epstein. That option's no longer there. Justice needs to be served, um, and it's going to be served on somebody. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, hopefully it'll be served on somebody. Right. Um so a lot of the victims, if not all of them, had settled in civil court or, or reached an agreement uh, to settle before all of this happened. And I assume now they'll go after, maybe some will go after um, his estate. Um, so was venting their fury enough, as they did in federal court last month in Judge Berman's court, when he dismissed the sex trafficking case against Epstein? Enough for what? Enough for them. I mean, do you feel like they have other options criminally that they'll feel more like they got justice? Is it going after the... I don't think it was... I mean, I think it was a necessary, rather extraordinary thing that Judge Berman did to allow all that to be vocalized. I don't think it is even remotely enough. Um, There's, there's, you know, nobody currently under prosecution here. So long-term list of horrible crimes that have been going on essentially under somebody's nose for a long period of time, wide out in the open. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think I've seen a case quite this extraordinary, um, this brazen uh, to be gotten to where it's gotten. Um, he, he had the luxury of having lots of money. Uh, he had the luxury of having the best lawyers. He had the luxury of having um, some law enforcement officials in uh, in Florida who were willing to cut him a break. And why that is, I don't think we know the answer to those questions, but it's a troubling consideration 
when you have somebody with his level of resources getting essentially a slap on the wrist for something that he should gone to prison for for a very long time. And then you look at some of the cases that I deal with in, in the innocence clinic on a regular basis where people who are sentenced to prison for uh, 30, 40 years, maybe life in prison for potentially something they didn't do, um, and my clients don't have any resources. So you look at it and it turns into, it starts feeling like there's a dual system for the system of justice sure. in the United States, those who have the Epsteins and those who don't. Well, is it, is it that a prosecutor is going after low-hanging fruit because he can put it in his win column. And when you're dealing with someone like Epstein, who has unlimited resources and can build a dream team, it's like it's going to cost that prosecutor's office a ton of money to prosecute that guy when they can rack up and a, a ton of, of smaller cases or uh, smaller fish. I would really hope that that consideration never, ever enters into a prosecutor's mind. I know great prosecutors who they don't – that's not a concern to them. Was a crime committed? Yes. Can I prove it? Yes. Let's prosecute. That's the only consideration. The fact that this particular consideration where we had Epstein with essentially a mountain of evidence against him pleading to basically state-level charges um, that don't make any sense, uh, that's troubling to me. And it wasn't because – it was easier to convict him. I think one of the declarations of the people involved was the defense lawyers gave me too much trouble, so it wasn't worth it prosecuting him. There's a list of 10, 20, 30 young women who were trafficked for illegal purposes and sexually abused by this man that's fairly well documented, um, and he pleads to essentially uh, 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 prostitution charges. Well, and they're state-level cases. You can't be convicted of prostitution of a 14-year-old girl. That's a strict liability offense in the state of Florida. Right. You go to jail for that. He did 13 months in work release and spent the entire day in a posh apartment mm -hmm. because he's got resources. That's the point I was trying to make earlier. There's a dual track that's emerging in the criminal justice system. We have 2.5 million people, 2.2 million people in prison in the United States. Um, almost all of them are impoverished to some degree. The very poor make up a huge population of that. The very rich apparently don't because you get to hire the best uh, and you have influence uh, in an outsized way that Epstein had. If he's anybody else, he, he dies in prison in a far different way than he died in prison now, not by his own hand. He dies in prison as an old man by serving life in prison, mm -hmm. which is what should have happened. Do you think this is going to flip what happens with uh – with with uh, Weinstein, um, with with that case, I'm thinking also of Woody Allen, who seems to be fairly Teflon when it comes to these sorts of charges. Well, I mean, there there's a difference. Uh, I mean, certainly public clamor has a, a presence in all these extraordinary prosecutions. Mm. So um, I'm sure Weinstein's life just got a lot more difficult uh, because we can't we can't point. Jeffrey Epstein and say, look, we did the right thing and we prosecuted this guy finally. Uh, so he's going to get the brunt of that. Um, the, the, uh, the, um, uh, the Bill Cosby's of the world are, are going to get the, the brunt of that and, and, the, and they should. But I think the extraordinary lesson from the Epstein case is the outsized uh, role that his money and influence played in the resolution of his case. You know, they, in, the, in the Department of Justice, there's the statute 
back there. Um, and it's Lady Justice holding the scale. And she's blindfolded. She doesn't have a bank open at 8 o'clock sign right there. She doesn't have an ATM teller in the other hand. She has a scale and a blindfold on. It should not matter in the United States of America that Jeffrey Epstein is a billionaire or half a billionaire. It should not matter. It should not matter that my clients who are innocent in prison don't have a dime. Justice is supposed to be blind. In this case, perfectly examines and puts in the stark light of day how unblind it actually mm -hmm. is and how much power, money, and influence play into the unjust resolution of some cases. Right. Um, so how do we untilt the scale? Wow. Um, do we have another hour? <laughs> I'll give you four minutes on four that minutes. subject. Four minutes. <laughs> uh, okay, we'll solve, we'll solve all the world's ills in four minutes. I certainly hope so. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be, it'd be extraordinary. Almost as extraordinary as this particular case, in fact. <laughs> um, that's a that's a multifaceted question, um, and it's going to take a lot of effort, political effort, and a political courage in order to to change uh, the way certain things are done. It's going to take political effort and courage from the legislature's point of view. It's going to take political effort and courage from the prosecuting authority's point of view. It's going to take political effort and, and courage from law enforcement and from the public to stand up and say, you know, we want. We want and deserve a better justice system in the United States. Certainly it is great. Certainly it's probably the best on the planet. It's the beacon that everybody looks to. But we know we get it wrong on certain cases. The National um, Registry of Exonerations has uh, over 2,400 exonerations since 1989. And it amounts to over 20,000 years of time spent in prison for crimes that people did not commit. Mm -hmm. On the complete opposite end of the scale, we have Jeffrey Epstein, who committed crimes that would have landed him in, in prison for the rest of his life. And although some can say he was in prison for the rest of his life because he killed himself while he was there, right. that's not really what I mean. Two months later. Right. Um, I, I mean tried, convicted, properly sentenced mm -hmm. uh, on there. So we have two extreme ends of the, uh, of the, the spectrum on here, um, bookmarked or bookended by one main factor, money or the lack thereof. And that shouldn't be a factor in the American criminal justice system. I don't believe that's what the founding fathers ever had in mind when they designed uh, what we have. So what do you remove the ability to outspend the prosecution? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying. But how do you get that? You, you, you if, get, if money is the tilt, how do you remove that part of the well, equation? You, you, you can't. If first and foremost, the government's going to have unlimited resources, mm -hmm. right? Uh, they have all the police on their side. They have prosecution. They have teams of investigators. They don't file a charge until everything's compiled and ready to go. They're the captain of that ship, right? The problem becomes when not necessarily when uh, a wealthy individual is able to outspend uh, uh, the prosecution. And if you're in a federal case, you're not wealthy enough to outspend the United States government. Right. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are. Sorry, Bill Gates. Um, <laughs> um, but nobody's going to outspend the United States government in a prosecution, um, which is extraordinary because this particular prosecution got derailed uh, here in the Southern District presumably because of that very fact. And I've never, 25 years of, of doing this, I've never seen anything quite like that. I've never seen a, a prosecutor saying, I'm afraid of the defense, so we're going to fold. 
In fact, I, I don't know very many defense lawyers who said, I'm afraid of the prosecution, so I'm going to fold. Right. The, the system works perfectly when both sides strike really hard legal blows at each other, and then the jury figures it out. And when you have a situation that allows influence based on money, based on friends, based on powerful relationships to prevent that slugfest, if you will, mm-hmm. that legal slugfest in court, which is what the adversarial system is all about, strike good, hard, fair blows in court, let the jury decide. That's the way it's supposed to happen. The public was deprived of that phenomenon in the Epstein case. Mm-hmm. Not only were they deprived of that, but that that plea agreement, that non-prosecution agreement, also insulated the co-conspirators, which is a little bit on the unprecedented side, too. Why can, why Epstein has any interest in the co-conspirators? Well, when say, who knows? Well, you can probably figure out why he was wanting the co-conspirators to be insulated, too, because then they get pinched. They'll go, oh, well, I didn't do it. Epstein made me do it. Right. And then he gets pulled back into it. So this whole thing is, to, to put it the, the least academically refined way I can put it, this whole thing stinks. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I saw it happen, the first thing I thought about was um, a 19-year-old client that I have in prison for the rest of his life for a burglary he didn't commit. Mm-hmm. And there's no evidence against him at all, except for a shaky eyewitness ID that was completely discredited at court. Um, and I've been fighting since 2012 to get him out of prison on it. Jeffrey Epstein has a mountain of evidence against him on crimes that would have landed him in prison for decades, if not the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And somehow he escapes that. This is the weirdest case ever. Right. And we hope. We hope I, there's not weirder ones that we don't know about, right? I wake up every morning think I can't, thinking I can't be surprised <laughs> by the criminal justice system. And then every, every once in a while I open up the paper and I say, oops, wrong again. Well, <laughs> I just got surprised. On that note, um, on the, the civil and the optics side, uh, Epstein, through his wealth and, as you said, his connections, was able to open a lot of doors and rub elbows with titans of industry here, internationally, everywhere. Now these people can't seem to back up fast enough. Have you ever seen a, a case that's at all like this where where you have so many, you know, royalty and Bill Gates and two presidents, like, all kind of smushed together in this weird little conga dance? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, conga dance. Um, no, I think this. Uh, there's so much about this case that is is uh, is unprecedented. Um, I don't know that there's been uh, a high profile defendant who's been friends with everybody from a prince to you know former presidents and captains of industries, like you said, uh, captains of academia. Even um, this is a guy who who, for whatever reason, liked to collect people. You know, collect friends for influence, collect powerful friends, collect people, collect associates. And unfortunately, young girls for his nefarious reasons uh, and his nefarious deeds. Um, no crime about collecting friends who are adults, but trafficking in, in girls for sex, you need to go to prison for that. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, shouldn't matter that you have a lot of money and that you have a lot of friends. The, the law shouldn't, it shouldn't be meted out in such a fashion. And the fact that that's a consideration and it was a consideration in this case troubles me to, to, the, to the core of everything I believe in in the American criminal justice system and why I do what I do. Where do you think it went wrong? This case, not the American justice system. Oh, okay. We I was don't gonna, have I was enough gonna, time I was, was going to answer the latter one because it's <laughs> frankly the easier of the two. Um, 
I don't know where it went wrong. It went wrong um, in in ways that uh, so far seemed to me to defy explanation. I think there there should be. I, I think uh, I think it might have been a, the, the attorney general who suggested there might need to be some congressional inquiry into how this happened. Um, and I would welcome that. I would like to see that and see how that shakes out and how how this actually played out. I caught, I'm cautious though about that because you know the, I don't want to make it sound like I'm blaming the defense lawyers who are involved in this. They are the best of the best of the best. Um, and they did the job that they were hired to do. Um, if, if I were hired to represent Mr. Epstein and I had the resources and the connections that these lawyers do, I would have tried to negotiate the exact plea deal that they negotiated. That's what defense lawyers do. The problem that happened is I think from the law enforcement side, of this, their obligation broke down a little bit. They uh, more than a little bit. They chose to do a benefit for one man, except uh, on the uh, uh, instead of thirty or forty girls who needed justice mm-hmm. on that. Um, and I think that's where it break, broke down. How and why it broke down at that particular place, I don't think we know the answer to that yet. We may never know the answer to that, um, but. What we do know is it did indeed break down. And and what you've heard from Acosta and the other people that were in that office that negotiated that deal, has that made sense to you? Or are you like, hmm, that seems a little smelly? Uh, it, none of it's made sense to me. Although I wasn't in, you know, I wasn't part of any of that. So I don't know what the considerations were. Um, all I know about the facts of the case is all is everything that we all know through mm-hmm. Oddly enough, investigative reporting. Thank um, you, Julie K. Brown. Right. Uh, great reporting that was done on this, which is another troubling notion of that, that it took an investigative reporter to bring all this to light, not law enforcement, which is what is supposed to happen. Right. Uh, except for, you know, the the uh, United States Attorney's Office in New York, who seems to be spearheading this now. Right. It, I mean, back when it happened, people n- knew about it, but it was kind of like, well, there were other things going on. It kind of didn't get the attention until, you know, Julie came Brown was like, well, well, this doesn't seem very kosher. Let's see how far we can dig. And it took her a year to get what she got. So yeah, was- well, which is which is a testament to old school, diligent investigative reporting that unfortunately I think we see far too few, far too little of. These days, I mean, this is this is a some serious, dedicated work that she you know went into. In some cases like this, there we don't we don't know about them because we're not meant to mm-hmm. know about them. In fact, I, I think there was a, an issue in this particular dis- plea discussions about keeping it quiet and, and and you know keeping the public out of it. Uh, and that's where you know journalists are, are do their service to to the the citizenry. And hold up the the values of the First Amendment by doing this and, and letting the public know. New York, he wouldn't have been arrested uh, and indicted in New York if it wasn't for that reporting, mm-hmm. um, you know. And and and, and so, um, you know, the that has that has to happen. And the extent that, that that is stifled in some in some circumstances is another troubling. This is almost like a perfect storm of things that can go wrong in a prosecution that went wrong, um, not from a 
not from a wrong person got convicted, but from somebody being able to manipulate the system to their advantage uh, to not serve to not serve uh, time on it. Right. So you think this is definitely a flag that we will not see these cases proceed like this in the future? I would hope so. Um, but 25 years doing this, I've become a bit of a pessimist. Oh, Greg. <laughs> um, uh, but I would hope that this would be the, the straw that breaks the proverbial camel's back on on this. Um, uh, I, I would also hope that what it when the pendulum swings, that it doesn't swing too far back into the face of defense lawyers. Because like the investigative reporters, um, there are some things that this country cannot function without, and one of them is a solid defense bar. The Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution provides that you shall have the right to counsel when you're charged of a criminal offense. If that gets truncated in, in the zeal to, to hold people accountable for their wrongdoings, if the criminal defense bar gets truncated and, and stifled in its ability to do its job, that doesn't solve the problem either. That makes the problem for the people that I represent worse. Mm-hmm. In fact, I see that on a regular basis, non-funding of indigent defense, um, no, no great training for, for trial attorneys and defense lawyers and, and that sort of thing leads to poor lawyering, poor results. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't want this to turn into a let's gang up on defense lawyers, all bad, they get guilty people off, right? That, that obviously happens, but that's not, the, that's not the point. The point is if the government is going to take away somebody's freedom, Jeffrey Epstein's or one of my client's freedom, if they're going to do that, their job ought to be hard. Mm-hmm. By design, it ought to be hard to do that. Um, and by design, in order for them to do that, there ought to be a robust system of defense counsel forcing them to do their job. Because for every case that the government isn't forced to do their job by meeting its burden beyond a reasonable doubt, for every case that they're not forced to do that, it makes it easier for the downtrodden to get convicted for something they didn't do. So my fear of the Epstein case is that there will be a backlash against the wrong people, that there will be a backlash against defense lawyers and their ability or our ability, because that's a community that I define myself as, uh, that our, our, our ability as defense lawyers will get truncated. And if that's the case, in my opinion, that everybody will be less safe. Nobody loses unless everybody loses? Or the other way around? Well, I, I mean, to, to put it more starkly, the Epstein case is an extraordinary case, right? There's an old adage that bad facts make bad law, mm-hmm. right? Uh, these are bad facts. And I don't want this to make bad law for the broader criminal justice system. I want it to point out that there are flaws in the criminal justice system between those who have and those who have not. Right. Right. I don't want this to be a referendum on defense lawyers, all defense lawyers, bad look, see, they got Jeffrey Epstein off. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not what I want. Uh, they, they did their job, right? There are certain people in, in this case who, who, in my view, did not do their job. And they're irrespective of defense counsel's job in this particular case, right? So if the prosecution would have been fighting as hard as the defense lawyers, perhaps this case works out differently. Mm -hmm. 
Keep up the good work. <laughs> Thank you. Anything else? Go team. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything else? Um, yeah, I, I, I am. It, it, I always try to find the silver lining. Um, and one of the silver linings, I think, of this case, if there, if there can be one, is that more and more people are looking at what happens on a day-to-day basis uh, in the criminal justice system. And I think the more people know about it, the more um, there could be better, uh, more uh, educated reform on the process. There's been you know, a lot of clamor over past couple of elections about criminal justice reform and sentencing and so forth, and that's all, that's all good. I welcome those conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a conversation um, that needs to, needs to happen too. And I'm, uh, hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll keep it moving in the right way. Like I said, I, I do, I do fear, um, that the wrong, that the wrong parties will be scapegoated in this. So I want to be careful about that. Uh, a lot of people say, Oh, but the defense lawyers, you, you must be pro crime. You want all your clients to get off and all that and all that stuff. I'm as offended by crime as everybody else is. I don't want crime to happen. That's not my position. I'm as offended about this case as anybody else is, probably more so right. uh, from a per- particular, my particular professional point of view. Um, but I, I do what I do, and I've done what I've done for two and a half decades because I am concerned and motivated by fairness in the system. And I see examples like this as an example of where the unfairness happens. Mm. Um, And more people will see this as an unfairness as they will see my clients who are in prison for something they didn't do because nobody wants to hear from them. We all want to hear about Jeffrey Epstein. Right. And so hopefully that'll have the conversation started and maybe some progress can be made in all aspects of, you know, fixing what we all see. Well, what we all seem to know is wrong about the criminal justice system. It needs to be fixed. Well, thank you for joining us again. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Ray D. Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's show was brought to you by Miami Law's Class Action and Complex Litigation Forum. Join leading judges, practitioners, and scholars on January 24, 2020, discussing multi-district class actions and mass tort reform on the University of Miami campus. For more information on the CLE event, go to law.miami.edu backslash MCAF. <laughs>